Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. You know, living in our area, we, we tend to have a lot of, I guess we might call them overlapping fan bases. So, by, by what has to be a miracle of the Holy Spirit, we've got a congregation that is filled with volunteers and elephants and tigers and dogs that's being led by a gator. That's got to be a work, of, a work of God that we all get along and might actually get to actually watch football and talk about football on Sunday mornings uh, starting, uh, starting in, in, a, in, a few, in a few weeks, hopefully. Uh, that's how you get Baptists to pray. Tell them that the football season, SEC football season's in jeopardy, and Baptists will pray then. Um, you know, in spite of our mixed allegiances with college football, I do think that there is probably a little bit more of a unifying force in our area, and that's the, uh, that's the Atlanta Braves. Uh, you know, I think everybody, it, you know, to some extent is a, is a bit of a Braves fan. However, that, um, that unity can certainly be fractured when you have Crimson Tide fans and Braves fans all in the same room during the months of September in October. If I were to, in the middle of September, walk into, a, walk into a worship service and I had a shirt on with a red A embroidered on it, uh, somebody might look at me and say, roll tide. At the same time, somebody might look at me and say, chop on, because those red A's are so very similar. However, when you lay those red A's side by side, you see that the, the Atlanta Braves and the Crimson Tide logos are, are not exactly the same. I had, uh, I had to learn a, a helpful tool in learning to, to not wrongfully identify a Crimson Tide fan with a, with a Braves fan. And, and the tool is really quite simple. If you can see the logo and you can see it in your app, the, 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 the Alabama logo has got a mullet. And so that's an easy way to keep that straight. The Alabama fan has, has got a mullet. And, and after living, as we did, in the shadow of Tuscaloosa, Alabama for about three years, I can certainly understand where the mullet comes from. Now, what I'm calling a mullet, font designers call it something a little more formal. It's called a, a serif. Now, don't confuse that with the biblical serif, the angel. This is a serif. It's something that we see in, in font design. You've got a King James Bible, you might notice in Matthew chapter 5 that it's called a, a tittle. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 talks about jots and tittles. Uh, the, the point is that this little serif here is, the, is really the, the smallest portion of a written text. In the Latin alphabet, the, the system that most Western languages use, Serifs don't matter all that much. Serifs, if you're typing, differentiate between what is kind of an older classic font like Times New Roman and a new font like Arial. They, they differentiate those, those sort of things. However, in Hebrew, other Eastern alphabets, serifs, jots, and tittles can change a word completely. For example, here are two different letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Again, if you can't see these, they're in, the, they're in the, that web page there. Two totally different letter, letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and they're differentiated. They're identical on the bottom, 
But the only thing that differentiates them is, is the dot on top. And, and if you can't see it, imagine a W. And on one W, the dot is on the left side. And on the other W, the dot is on the right side. And in the Hebrew language, that's two totally different letters, all differentiated by a, by a dot. And one makes the shh sound. So, so teachers, you're probably working those muscles now that uh, you had not had to work in a while, the shh sound. And then the other one makes just the s sound. So in English, we have an S-H or we have, a, we have an S. In this language, it's differentiated by two totally different letters with a different dot. Now, why does that matter? Well, if you put them in a word, if you're not paying attention to where the dots go, you're, you're actually talking about two different words. You take that letter and you put it on this word, and one word means to plow, the other word means to destroy. And so you don't know if you're going to war or if you're going to farm based on if you don't pay attention to the dots. Now you say, preacher, I came to church, not a, not a grammar lesson. Well, I want to walk down that, that quick tutorial about typefaces and Hebrew letters, not because it's ever going to come up in a trivia contest, but because I believe it's pertinent in our next stop in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Over in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, we encounter what is some of the most uh, challenging words in the New Testament. Jesus, in these verses, get right, gets right to the heart of our understanding of how we relate to the Old Testament scriptures. Now, keep in mind that there's, there's really two different extremes represented by today's trends as well as the expectation of Jesus' day. In our day and time, we are seeing more and more prominent pastors, prominent teachers publicly departing from the Old Testament. Saying, well, you don't have to talk about those Old Testament books because they're, they're a little harder to get through and, and they paint a picture that we don't necessarily want to have to explain. Um, that's one extreme. Now, I'm not talking about the guy who would rather preach Paul than Jeremiah. Everybody's got their preference, and so I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about public statements declaring that the Old Testament is irrelevant for believers of this generation, which has certainly been the case in many, in many churches across our country. Of course, in Jesus' day, the Old Testament was the Scriptures. They didn't have the New Testament to refer to. And so in Jesus' day, you had the, the Pharisaical legalism of the day where, where they not only worked to follow the law, they also insulated the law with additional lists of demands so that if you were going to be a good believer, you had to not only keep the law, you had to keep all the things that went along with the law. So there was a, a long list of things that needed to be followed. So we read the, the Sermon on the Mount from the perspective of people who are wondering why the Old Testament has relevance for us today. But Jesus is preaching to a group of people who, who can't fathom following anything other than the letter of the law. So this morning I want us to dive in and see if we can make sense of what Jesus is teaching here. So we're in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read this in, uh, as we stand together. Matthew chapter 5, we'll be reading verse 17 through 20. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Jesus continuing the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a, not a, the ESV calls it the, the Yoda, not a Yoda, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Father, I thank you for the precious words of Jesus that give us insight into how we should respond to the old covenant. Lord, I ask that you bless our conversation today, that it might bear much fruit in our lives and give us insight and understanding. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Jesus' words here obviously raise a question for us today. How do we today, as New Covenant, New Testament believers, how do we reconcile Jesus' words here with other teaching in the New Testament that, um, that suggests that the Old Testament law has, has had some modifications that it has undergone in Jesus' ministry? For example, it's clear that Jesus removed the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament. You have Mark chapter 7, verse 19, that boldly declares that Jesus declared all foods clean. You also have the, the anecdotal evidence of Peter uh, on the roof there when the, when the quilt is let down with all the different foods in it that Jesus declared clean. And so, so we, we recognize that Jesus removed the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament. Uh, of course, if you go back and you read the New Testament, you find that the early church recognized very early on there was no longer any need for animal sacrifices. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13 declares that. And then, of course, the evidence of the New Testament says that the early Christians very quickly abandoned Saturday as the holy day and began to embrace Sunday, the Lord's Day, as the, the version of the Christian Sabbath. It's reflected in numerous places. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10 is just one of those places. So if indeed all the, all the jots and tittles, all the, all the dashes, all, the, all those little marks that represent the Old Testament Scripture, if they were to remain intact, then why aren't we following the Old Testament law as well as the New Testament instructions? Doesn't this text call us to, to take a page out of the playbook of our Seventh-day Adventist friends? They keep all the dietary and Sabbath laws. Shouldn't we be following their example as folks who keep track of the Old Testament law to, um, in their modern expression of Christianity? Uh, anybody who enjoyed bacon this morning for breakfast or, or who enjoys a nice plate of fried shrimp or fried catfish, you might need to say goodbye to all those things because those don't fall in line with the Old Testament teachings on what sort of food items are clean and, and unclean. However, if I believed that, I'd probably need to say goodbye to my job because uh, if I told Baptists they couldn't have bacon or catfish, I would be, uh, I'd be out of work. So how do we reconcile this? This is clearly a, a we don't dare call it a contradiction, but how do we reconcile that, that Jesus here says not one jot or tittle of the, word, of the law will pass away until all is fulfilled? How do we reconcile that today in a place where we celebrate so much freedom that we have in Christ? So in order to reconcile what we wrongly may perceive as a contradiction, there's a couple of things that we need to note. The first thing that we need to note is this, is that Jesus is the object of the Old Testament. 
Jesus is the object of the Old Testament. Christians have long recognized that there is a scarlet thread that runs through the Bible. And beginning there in the garden, you see the blood of Jesus flowing through the Scriptures almost as a theological river that flows through the Bible. We see it there in the garden in the promise of the, of the seed of Eve that will crush the serpent's head. We see it in that first sacrifice that's paid to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. You see it through the word of the prophets. You see it expressed in the sacrifice of all the, 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 the ceremonial law of the Israelites. And then we get into the, the New Testament and we see, of course, Jesus... Uh, shedding his blood on Calvary. So we see this scarlet thread of redemption that goes from Genesis to Calvary, all pointing to Jesus. If you're reading the Old Testament and you're not looking for Jesus, you're missing out on one of the greatest treasures that we have in our life, and that's finding Jesus in, in the Old Testament. And in, in a very real sense, the scarlet thread of the Old Testament points directly to the Messiah. So this notion that Jesus came to abolish the Old Testament, as many have tried to, tried to make the case for throughout history, it makes no sense because by abolishing the, New the, the Old Testament, the, you'd be abolishing the very story that defines the need and defines the scope of Jesus' ministry. Why in the world would you, would you eliminate your, your history to make yourself more comfortable today? That may need to be preached in other places. It makes no sense to rid ourselves of the Old Testament that points itself to the Lord Jesus Christ. We recognize the Old Testament's full of flawed people who made a lot of mistakes, but it, God uses those flawed people to prepare us to receive what Christ is in the New Testament. And so, so when I open up my Old Testament, it's, it's like a it's like an Easter egg hunt as a kid where, where I can't wait to find what's, what's hiding behind that bush or, or, or in, this, in this mulch. I can't wait to see what's there because Jesus is there. You just got to know where to look. You got to know you're looking for him. He is the object of the Old Testament. So, of course, he doesn't come to abolish the Old Testament because it points to him. Why would we? It makes no sense. But perhaps even more than Jesus being the object of the Old Testament, we need to recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that it's divided into different categories. You hear people talk about law and prophets and, pro and poetry and things like that. But we need to recognize, in a sense, that the entire Old Testament points to Jesus. It functions prophetically. That, that even the law serves as a prophetic looking forward to Jesus. The law talks about the sacrifices and, and the, the countless sacrifices, the blood that's shed in order to, to, to mitigate the sin of the nation. Well, that's not just for our information. That's preparing us for the perfect sacrifice that is to come. And so the sacrificial system serves as a prophetic look to the ministry and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus comes onto the scene. He comes onto the scene as the as the perfect fulfillment of all the anticipation of the Old Testament. He fulfills the Old Testament in at least five ways. First, he satisfied all the messianic predictions. Every last one of the messianic prophecies Jesus satisfied. Matthew's gospel is particularly good at pointing out those prophetic fulfillments of the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that he was where he was born and how he was born and, and all the different things that, that, the, that the Old Testament points to regarding Jesus. Matthew tries to pull those out. So if you want to see Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament, read through the, read through the gospel of Matthew. You'll, you'll experience that. 
So he satisfies all the messianic prophecies and predictions. Secondly, when he died on the cross, he satisfied the demands of the law against all those who would believe in him. The early church did away with animal sacrifices because there was theologically no reason to continue to offer the blood of lambs and bulls because we declare that there is a perfect sacrifice that has been made. Why would we continue to offer sacrifices? It makes no sense from what we believe to to continue to offer sacrifices because Jesus was the sufficient sacrifice. Thirdly, Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament by keeping all of its commands. Nobody's done that. Nobody was able to keep the commands of the Old Testament. Jesus never broke the law. He was the only one who ever lived who was perfectly able to keep the law. And so he satisfied the law in that regard. Fourthly, Jesus fulfills the law in believers through the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul says this very clearly in Romans chapter 8, verse 2. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And of course, lastly, we see Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament by bringing the doctrine and teaching of the Old Testament to life. Through his teaching, through his person, through his expectations, he he brings that doctrine of the Old Testament into the new. And so Jesus, in his person, completely satisfied the requirements of the law. He fulfilled it perfectly. There's no absolutely no way he abolished it. And if anyone wants to stand up and say Jesus did away with the Old Testament, tell them that makes no sense. Because the Old Testament points itself completely to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus did is he fulfilled it and he inaugurated the kingdom to which it pointed. So, of course, Jesus did not do away with the Old Testament. He says that in verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, many people thought that by the Beatitudes, Jesus was bringing in some new law and some new set of instruction, and that wasn't the case at all. What we actually will find is that the law Jesus brings in, in so many ways, is much harder than the law of the Old Testament. As we continue looking at verse 18, we need to keep this in mind, that Jesus is the embodiment of the durability of the law and prophets. As I shared with the kids, not one dot. The words that Jesus used, he says, says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a a iota. The the iota is, is the Greek translation of the smallest letter of the Hebrew language. The, the yod. The yod is just a little apostrophe, but it's a full-blown letter, but it's the smallest letter in the Hebrew language. And when Jesus says not one iota, he's saying not one little letter, not one little yod will pass away. Not one little tittle will pass away. Not, not one will pass away. This is so important for us today as New Covenant believers, because what Jesus is saying here is that is that he is, he is representing a profound continuity between the old and the new. There is a profound continuity between the righteous requirements of the law called for in the Old Testament and the righteousness of Jesus. You see, some people wrongly think that, that one is better than the other, that Jesus is better than the law, that the New Testament is better than the old, 
I think even we say that in our expression, that, that we like reading the New Testament better than we like reading the Old Testament. It's, it's easier, it's closer to us from a context standpoint. But Jesus represents this continuity between the two. We, we shouldn't see it as, as this is the old that's done away with, this is the new that we live in. We should see it as this continuity that we are coming to the end of here in our life. If we're thinking about one being better than the other, we're thinking about them all wrong. I've often um, lamented that we have red-letter Bibles. How many of us have a red-letter Bible that we're looking at right now? I've got one that I'm preaching from, just so, just so you, you know. Um, because by, by putting red letters in the Bible, what are we saying? That, that, those le- that those letters are more important than the not-red letters, because Jesus spoke them. Well, listen, if we believe the inerrancy, the holiness of God's Word, then guess what? Them black letters are just as valid as the red letters are, right? So, so w- I understand why publishers do it. I'm not saying don't have one, but I believe that the black letters matter just as much as the red letters do. So when we see it as an entire story, I mean, I spent the first half of this year preaching through that story. 16, 16 weeks we spent working through that story. Jesus reminds us here, though, something very important. The law and the prophets aren't going anywhere. They are absolutely durable and enduring. Not one dot, not one tittle, not one will pass away until all is accomplished. Why does it matter? Because the Old Testament for us today, it it demonstrates God's expectations of righteousness. You say, well, what does God expect of me? Perfect holiness. That's his expectation of each and every single one of us. And the Old Testament constantly revealed our inability to reach that standard. If you read through it and you, you don't see your constant inability to get there, then you've missed the point. What's different now between the old and the new, what's different now between the old covenant and the new covenant is the difference in how that righteousness that is required is achieved. It's not achieved by us by keeping the law. The righteousness that's required by God is granted to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you may be tempted to hear this and think, well, good, I can ignore all that old, old covenant stuff. I can ignore all that Old Testament stuff. It doesn't matter what they did back then because I'm under grace, I'm not under the law, I'm saved by Jesus, I'm not saved by anything that I do in the, in the Old Testament, so I can ignore all that stuff. Well, before you go there, you might want to think again because the Old Testament pertains to an external righteousness, but the commands of Jesus get to the heart. Look at verse 19. This is pretty serious. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. If you remember the language that the prophets Jeremiah, Ezekiel, if you remember what they used, they spoke of a new covenant. And in that new covenant of which they spoke, they, they indicated that God's commands would not be written necessarily on, on, on paper as, as uh, we are blessed with the Word of God today, but that God's commands would be written on the hearts of His followers, that God would write His law upon the hearts. Because up until that point, the law represented a written code. Uh, the first thing that Moses did when he got to Mount Sinai, he had to go up to the mountain there and he had to get the written code. 
so that the people would see in writing what the expectations were, what God's desire was, what, what it required to be in a covenant with God. Up until that point, it was follow the law, everything will be fine, depart from the law, and you'll be in trouble. And the law never did anything, though, about the hearts of the people. It continually exposed the flaws in their hearts, but it never worked to, to redeem their hearts. That's why the Pharisees, they were able to get so carried away with keeping instructions because of their self-righteousness, which their self-righteousness was inadequate. For them, it became more than just, just keeping the law. It became keeping all the amendments to the law that they created. And that was the righteousness of the Pharisees. It was all about works and, 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 and following this checklist and making sure that I could check off that I'm a good person, that I've done this, that I've done that, that I've done this, that I've accomplished that. And the point is, is that the checklist will never save you. The checklist that the righteousness get, brings you will not get you to heaven. And church, listen to me. If you are worried about keeping your checklist today more than you are worried about serving and worshiping and, and loving the Lord Jesus Christ, you have got your priorities completely turned upside down. Jesus brings commands to us. In some ways, the commands that Jesus brings are more difficult than the commands of the Old Testament. In fact, starting next week, we're going to begin to unpack some of Jesus' commands that he brings to us in the Sermon on the Mount. And in so many ways, the commands that Jesus begins here in chapter 5 bring about a much-needed corrective to the corruption that had come upon the Old Testament law under the leadership and the rule of the Pharisees. Consider Jesus' warning about adultery, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount. You know the commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Jesus teaches us that here in verse 27 of chapter 5. You know that from one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. However, Jesus is concerned with the heart, not just the action. And the heart, Jesus warns us, is that, is that the crime is not only the act, but it's also the, the thought that drives the act. Again, Jesus' righteousness gets to the heart. Consider the law. Jesus very much affirms the law. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. He said that's the second greatest commandment. The first is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, that's great. What does it mean to love my neighbor? Well, Jesus has given us some insight into neighborly love in chapter 5. He says neighborly love is defined by things like this. Blessed are the meek. Loving our neighbor means interacting with them in meekness. Loving neighbor means that, that we uh, blessed are the peacemakers, that we work to achieve peace with our neighbors. Loving our neighbors means blessed are the merciful. All these are real ways of, of loving our neighbor. Loving our neighbor means more than just eh, go along and get along. Loving neighbor is an active role in working to love our neighbors, whoever they may be. You know, it's easy to love my neighbor when I don't have to do anything, right? It's easy to love my neighbor when you wave at him going down the street, right? I mean, I love my neighbor, I waved at him. But love of neighbor is more than just that. Love of neighbor means more than just tolerating. Love of neighbor means following Jesus' commands. Therefore, relaxing Jesus' commandments here is a serious offense. Because Jesus' commandments aren't just checklists. 
They're not just do these things and you'll be in good shape. Jesus' commandments get to the condition of the heart. And you can't define the condition of the heart with simply a checklist. Jesus' commandments gets to the heart of where our loyalty lies. John 14, 15 describes it succinctly. If you love me, you will keep my commands. It's not a matter of convenience. It's a matter of loyalty. When we look to Jesus' commands, we, we consider the expectations of what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And the only way we can do that is if our hearts are inclined to Jesus. Because the fact of the matter is this. Jesus requires a greater righteousness. Look at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees were the, they were the superstars of faith. We don't even think in these terms anymore because we've had so many high-profile failures of Christian leaders and we, it's, it's almost become our ex expectation that if you put somebody in a prominent position, they're going to do something uh, that's going to get them uh, you know, defamed in some way or another. So we don't even have a, have a concept of this anymore. If, if we were to come up with a secular equivalent of what Jesus is saying here, we might say something like this, unless your wealth exceeds the wealth of Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates. You say, oh, preacher, I'll never be that wealthy. Uh, unless your speed exceeds that of, of Usain Bolt. I'm going to challenge him to a race, and uh, he'd have me beat before I ever got out of the block. Unless your trophy case exceeds that of Nick Saban. You say, well, I'm a good coach, but I don't know that I could ever be that good. So we see these, these extremes, and Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you say, whoa, how in the world can I ever be more righteous than the Pharisees? Just as easy as you can have more money than Jeff Bezos. Just as easy as you can have more trophies than Nick Saban. Just as easy as you can be faster than Usain Bolt. Jesus' listeners were thinking, I could never be more righteous than the Pharisees. That's the point. You don't get the kingdom based on your righteousness. You don't get the kingdom based on your checklist. You don't get the kingdom based on your qualifications. You don't get the kingdom based on your ability to be good or behave because you will come up short every single time. Consider Jesus' words to the rich young ruler over in Mark chapter 10. In verse 17, Jesus, we, we read this story about the Lord. He says, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's asking this question. How do I get the kingdom? What, what do I do to, to earn this kingdom that, that you are proclaiming? How do I receive this kingdom, Lord? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Look at verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Do not defraud, honor your father and mother. There's a checklist, right? I can do all these things. I can keep these rules. I can obey all these things. He said, teacher, I, I've done all these things. You almost sense a, a, a sense of self-pride welling up inside. I, I've done all these things. If he were Baptist, he'd be thinking back to the envelopes 
And you remember the old Baptist envelopes where you in Sunday school, I brought my Bible, I brought a friend, I brought an offering, you know, I, I did how many contacts have I made? Man, we perfected the checklist in Baptist churches. I, I'm a pretty good person. I filled out, I filled out five out of six of my check boxes on my on my envelope, my Sunday school envelope. I've done pretty good this week. Look at all the boxes I've checked. Pat myself on the back. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him, said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell what you have and give it to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. Well, the man didn't have that. He kept the commandments, did everything right, checked all the boxes, but he lacked one thing. He lacked sufficient righteousness to inherit the kingdom of heaven. So what happened? Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never, ever, ever enter the kingdom of heaven. That's devastating. Of all the things that could be said right here, this is heart-crushing. Because how in the world can I be more righteous than those guys? How in the world can I do better than them? How can, how can my envelope look better than their envelope? They got all the Sunday school awards, perfect attendance, I, all of it. How can I do better than them? See, I believe what Jesus is doing here, I believe that his words here are pointing to a tremendous problem in our churches today. There are a ton of people today who profess to follow Jesus, but who are completely backwards in their understanding of how that works. They, they claim, I'm a Christian, I was baptized as a child, I, I have all the boxes. Men and women, listen to me. If you were hanging your hopes for the kingdom on the check boxes, you're going to be so brokenhearted when you realize that you've had it wrong all along. We absolutely should obey Jesus. But if we make any attempt to try to follow Jesus from a heart that has not been redeemed, then we are no different than the Pharisees who simply tried to keep the law but never had their hearts right. You don't get the kingdom on your own righteousness. You don't get the kingdom on your own merit. You don't get the kingdom on your own checklist. The only way you get the kingdom is if your righteousness is better than theirs. And by itself, guess what? Every last one of us come up devastatingly short 
and there's going to be a bunch of people who bust the gates of hell wide open because they missed this point. The only righteousness that surpasses the scribes and Pharisees is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way that we receive that righteousness is a gift of God's grace when we place our faith and trust completely in him for salvation. One day when we stand before a holy God, you've heard this, and he looks and says, why should I let you in? Don't pull out your Sunday school envelopes. Don't pull out your how much Bible reading you did. Don't quote all the scripture verses that you memorized. Don't talk about how many times you came to church. Don't talk about that you came to church in a pandemic. The only answer is that I'm his. And he has bought me with his blood. And he has declared me righteous by his grace. When you get that right, everything else falls into place. We obey Jesus not because we're afraid of a heavy hand of judgment. We obey Jesus because we're his. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Lord, I love you. I can't wait to keep your commandments. Lord, I love you. I can't wait to do what you say. Not, maybe if I do what he says, he'll, uh, he'll love me. That's, not, that's backwards. You don't get the kingdom on your righteousness. You don't get the kingdom by behaving, by being a rule follower. You follow the rules because your hearts have been changed by the work of God. And I would encourage you today that if you've had it backwards, if you've been doing all the stuff, hoping that it will grant you a good standing, that today you would cry out to the Lord, repent from your self-righteousness, and receive the righteousness of Jesus that comes through faith by his grace, not by our works. Not one yoda, not one dot will pass away until all is accomplished. May we faithfully believe the word of God. May we regularly stand on the word of God. And may we proclaim its truth to a lost and dying generation. Would you pray with me, please? God, thank you for your word, for your faithfulness. Thank you that you stand by your truth. God, I thank you for the righteousness that we have in Jesus. <laughs> That's way better than anything we can provide. And if there's any today under the sound of my voice, whether in the room or remote, who've been doing it wrong, that today they would recognize and call on you to get it right. Not one of us will cross into the kingdom because of how good we are. We only get there because of how good you are. Thank you for this time and your precious word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. 
We hope to see you soon.